Well, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing in 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. So when I came to work at Grace Bible Church about seven years ago, I was not yet finished with seminary. So for a while, I was working as a pastor and taking classes at the same time. And, and one of the classes that I had to take was called Introduction to Preaching. Now, the irony was, I, I was already preaching. I was already filling in for, for Brian or for Matt in the college service, and, and it seemed to go okay. I would get on the stage, and no one would leave, so that was a, a good sign. I was encouraged, and I was preaching on, on a regular basis to hundreds of people, so I thought, well, why don't I appeal to the seminary and see if they'll give me credit for the class? That makes sense. Why spend $1,000 on a class about introduction to preaching when I'm already doing it? So, I appeal to the seminary. I ask, hey, can, can I submit recordings of my sermons to you and get credit for the class? That, that seems to make sense to me. They, they responded, absolutely not. No, <laughs> you can't do your own sermons. You have to do our sermons. We have particular passages we want you to preach. So I thought, well, okay, let me appeal again. Can, can I take your passages, your sermons, and, and work them up and preach them in my church, and I'll send you the recordings? Won't that work? Kill two birds with one stone. To which they replied, absolutely not. No, you have to take our class. You have to do it our way. Now, at this point, I was getting pretty angry. And I'm, I'm not usually an angry person. That's just not in my nature. But, but I was getting steamed. I was really frustrated. It, it felt like they weren't listening to me. They seemed so unreasonable. I was, I was really frustrated, but there was nothing I could do. I had to take the class. I take the class. Well, turns out I did learn a lot of stuff. It was a helpful class to take. And, and after the class, I, I spent some time reflecting back on that situation. I wondered, why did I get so upset? And what I realized is I, I didn't get upset because I had to take a class on preaching. I, I enjoy preaching. I, I do it every week. It's, it's fun for me. I don't mind preaching. What made me so upset is that I had to submit to an authority whom I disagreed with. That's incredibly hard for me. I think it's probably hard for most of us. It's incredibly frustrating when we have to submit to an authority who's not listening to us, who seems unreasonable, who we disagree with. We, we talked about that last week. Submission is hard. We talked about submission to government and submission to your employer. It is hard to submit to elected officials and to our bosses when we don't agree with them. We're going to continue to talk about that this morning. We're going to continue to talk about submission, but specifically submission in the realm of marriage. We're going to talk about what it means for wives to submit to their husbands. Now, I know this is not a popular topic in our society. <laughs> our society criticizes and vilifies submission in any form. It does not respect the idea of submission, certainly not in marriage. And, and I want to acknowledge, I know this is probably a, a painful and difficult topic for, for many of you women in the room, especially if you are married to a guy who's, who's not a good leader in your home, a guy who is not a godly man. The thought of having to submit to that man is, is probably painful. It's probably really difficult. Now, that, that's actually exactly the situation that Peter's dealing with in our passage this morning. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Peter says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, so, so we have got seven verses. The first six are to the wives, the, the last, the seventh is to husbands. I'll, I'll follow that same division in my sermon. Most of this morning we'll be talking to the wives, then at the end we'll come back to the husbands. Now to understand what Peter is saying to these wives, we've got to understand the background a little bit. What did this passage mean to Peter's original audience? Why did he write this instruction to women? Well, let me fill you in on what's going on. Uh, the situation in Peter's day was that he was writing to many new churches where women, wives, had accepted the gospel, but their husbands had not. That's actually a common situation, both in ancient times and today. Women are often more spiritually receptive than men. So you have all these women who are, who are now believers and their husbands are not, and that creates a little bit of a situation. What's the result of this situation? Well, these women had always submitted to their husbands. That was simply what all wives did in the ancient world. Submission was expected. They all obeyed their husbands. Um, But now something had changed. Now the women had become believers, and as a result, the women were now more spiritually fit to lead their homes than the men were. The women were believers. The women had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Their husbands did not. These women knew biblical truths their husbands did not. Their husbands were still blinded by Satan and slaves to sin. So that brings a natural question. Should these women continue to submit to their unbelieving husbands? Should they continue to submit when they're now more spiritually fit to lead than their husbands are? Well, that's a reasonable question to ask. And so Peter camps on that question for six verses. He gives an answer and an explanation. His answer is very simple. The answer is yes. Even though you are now more spiritually fit to lead than your husband, still you should submit to him. Still you should obey him. Continue in that relationship of submission, even though you're a believer and he is not. And here's why. The motivation is at the end of verse 1. So that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. If these wives continue to submit to their unbelieving husbands, their husbands might be one for the gospel. Now, that gets us back to the big idea for all of 1 Peter. We covered it last week. Big idea for the whole book of 1 Peter is chapter 2, verse 11. Look back there. Verses 11 and 12. Here's the big idea of the whole book. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. How do we prove the truth of the gospel to a watching world? How do we show that our beliefs are true? Well, we do it through our excellent conduct. Through living lives of beautiful behavior, lives that are full of good deeds, we we validate the truth and beauty of our faith to the world. 
That's Peter's big idea in the book. He's getting very specific in chapter 3. How can these unbelieving wives prove the truth of their beliefs to their unbelieving husbands? Well, by continuing to submit to them. That's, that's the big idea. That's why Peter wrote this. Women, continue to submit to your unbelieving husbands because as you do, you can win them to the faith. But now the million-dollar question. Does it still apply to us? Does it still apply if the husband is a believer? Does it still apply for us living in a culture that does not value submission in marriage, that does not practice submission in a marriage, where it's in fact offensive to unbelievers? Does submission in marriage of the wife still apply? Well, we have a number of passages in the New Testament that are not connected to any particular situation or any particular culture that tell us yes. At all times, in all situations, in all contexts, wives are to submit to their husbands. One passage in particular, for example, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. This passage is not connected to a particular problem in the ancient world or a particular problem in a church. It's broad. It's always true. Paul connects the submission of the wife not to any cultural practice, but to God's design for marriage to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. As Christ is appointed head of the church, so the husband is appointed head of the home. As the church timelessly submits to Christ, so wives timelessly submit to their husbands. So, yes, the the command to submit still applies in marriages today. It still applies to us. So, So let's go deeper into this subject. What does submission in marriage look like? Let's do a little definition. Submission, this verb, to submit, it means to place oneself under the authority of another. In the realm of marriage, for the wife to submit to her husband means that she recognizes and supports her husband's divinely appointed authority as the head of the home. That's what a wife's submission means. It means she recognizes and supports her husband's God-appointed authority over the home. I heard it put really well by another pastor. He said this, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's authority in the home. It's a disposition or a willingness to defer to her husband's leadership and to use her gifting to help her husband accomplish what God has called them to do. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. So submission in marriage, it means that the wife recognizes and supports her husband's God-appointed authority as head of the home. Well, submission is easy to define, but it's really hard to understand. It's especially hard for us. We live in a society that has distorted the concept of submission. Our society has clouded this idea of submitting in marriage. Uh, Our society has actually turned submission into something that is, is ugly and oppressive, Our society has turned submission into something that's not at all what God intended. God intended for a wife's submission to her husband to be joyous and beautiful and freeing and empowering. That's not at all what our society sees. So for us living in a society that misunderstands submission completely, we need to spend some time this morning clearing away that distortion. 
Clearing away that misconception. I want us to see what biblical submission really means. I hope it's going to be different than what you've heard from society. I hope it's going to be appealing and beautiful to you. So we're going to use 1 Peter 3 to clear up this idea of submission. We're going to talk about what biblical submission is and what it's not. We'll start with the negative. What biblical submission is not. Biblical submission is not subjugation by the husband. It's very, very, very significant that Peter directed these words to the wives, not to the husbands. Submission is the woman's choice, not the man's. Nowhere in the New Testament are men given the command to subjugate their wives. It's not their decision, it's their wife's free decision. Now, what we don't realize is that when Peter wrote these words in the ancient world, they were radically progressive. This was radical that Peter was saying, wives, you have the choice to submit. Peter was writing to a society that assumed that men would put their women in their place. That men would subjugate their wives. That's what society assumes. Peter says, no, submission is the wife's choice. It's her free choice. This is what distinguishes Christian marriage from fundamentalist Islamic marriage. A lot of times in the news, in the papers, you will see our view of marriage compared with the view within fundamentalist Islam. But they're very different. They're radically different. And fundamentalist Islam, as it's practiced in many countries of the world, it's the husband's right to subjugate his wife. He rules over his wife. He rules over her through commands, through lists of rules. He controls her life. He has the right to subjugate her. The Bible gives us husbands absolutely no right to subjugate our wives. If our wives choose not to submit, nothing we can do about it. We cannot force them into submission. We cannot punish them. We don't have any of those rights. In biblical marriage, it's the wife's free choice. She can choose to submit or not. It's between her and God. So biblical submission is not subjugation by the husband. Second, it is not towards men in general. Context is really specific here. It's, it's a wife towards her husband. It's not women towards men in general. Peter would have no problem with a woman being CEO of a company. Or being president of the United States, that's fine. Women do not need to take a submissive role in society. This is just a woman towards her husband. Third, biblical submission is not based upon inferiority. Biblical submission is is not based on any deficiency in the woman. The husband is not appointed as head of the home because he is somehow superior to the woman. Now, again, when Peter lays out this passage, it would have been radically progressive back in his day. When he says in verse 7, look back at verse 7. He's talking to husbands and he says, Honor your wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life. That, That would be incredibly progressive back in Peter's day. Peter is saying that in God's eyes, men and women are equal. Men and women are equally heirs of God's grace, of God's blessing, of God's reward. There is no advantage that men have over women in God's eyes. That was radical back in Peter's day. Men and women are spiritual equals. But actually that equality goes beyond just the spiritual realm. There's nothing inherent in men that makes us smarter, more intelligent, wiser, more creative than our wives. We're not appointed to be the leaders in our home because we're somehow more qualified than them. In fact, in many marriages, the wife will actually be more intelligent than the husband. The wife will actually be a better leader than the husband, more gifted as a leader. Submission is not about the wife's inferiority. Now, Peter does say in verse 7, you'll notice verse 7, he says that women are weaker vessels. What does he mean there? 
It's, it's very specific in that context. Notice he says that women are weaker vessels. When he says that, he's using a metaphor. He's saying both the husband and the wife are vessels. That means pieces of pottery. Both men and women are pots. Now, men are earthenware pots, and women are alabaster jars. That's, that's the idea. Men and women are different. They each have their own strengths and weaknesses. One pot is not better than another. They each have their own strengths and weaknesses. And among the weaknesses of the alabaster jar is that it's more vulnerable to abuse. You can't handle an alabaster jar like you can an earthenware pot. That's Peter's point. Women are more vulnerable to abuse than men are. We've got thousands of years of world history to show us that that's true. Women are much, much more frequently the, the victims of abuse than men are. That's Peter's point. Not that women are inferior, but that women are more vulnerable to abuse. Biblical submission is not based upon any deficiency within the woman or any weakness within the woman. In this sense, biblical submission of the woman is is much like the ultimate example of submission we find in Scripture. The submission of God the Son to God the Father. Do Do you realize there's nothing about God the Father that makes him a better leader than God the Son? Both the Father and the Son are equally God. Both are infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, infinitely knowing. They are everywhere present. They are both equally perfect leaders. Jesus did not submit to the Father out of necessity or out of deficiency. He submitted freely out of love because there is beauty in order. When submission comes out of love, it's a beautiful thing. That's why Jesus submitted to the Father, not out of inferiority. So a woman's submission to her husband is not based on inferiority of the wife, but neither is it based on the worthiness of the husband. Submission is not only for cases where the husband is a worthy leader. It's not only based on marriages where the husband's a godly guy. Remember, in this context, these women's husbands were unbelievers, These women's husbands were not spiritually fit. The women were actually more spiritually fit than them, yet still the command to submit applies. Now, that takes us back to what we learned last week. Why do we submit to elected officials? Why do we submit to our elected officials? Is it because they're worthy? No, it's because God is worthy. We submit to our government because God has commanded us to do it, and God is worthy of our obedience. It's about God's worthiness, not your husband's worthiness. Submission is not based on the qualifications of your husband. So, that's what biblical submission is not. Now let's move on to what biblical submission is. Let's get to the positive side. First thing that Peter has for us. Biblical submission is submission to God first. Now, in Peter's day, back in the context of these women in the ancient world, it was expected in ancient Roman society that a wife would embrace the religion of her husband. Now, most of these men are pagans. They, they worship false gods. They do immoral things. So it was expected that their wives would follow them into idolatry and immorality. So Peter knew in the near future, most of these women are going to have to make a choice about whether to obey God's commands or obey their husband's commands. When it came down to a choice, when you had to pick between God or your husband, which do you choose? Peter gives us the answer in a, in a couple phrases. First, verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That word chaste, it means holy. We talked about holiness a few weeks ago. Holiness means that you fully obey God in every area of life. That's what God expects, that you fully obey him in every area of life. So if they have to choose, who do they go with? 
They go with God. Holiness comes first. It comes first in the book of 1 Peter. It comes first in our lives. Holiness is first. They must be holy. That trumps their obedience to their husbands. Now, that can create a problem. Peter mentions in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I think this verse is looking at exactly this situation where a woman has to pick between God or her husband. Why would a believing woman in the ancient world have reason to fear? Why would she have reason to be terrified? Well, if she had to disobey her pagan husband, that was a fearful prospect in the ancient world. Back under Roman law, a husband had the right to punish his wife, to beat his wife if she did not obey. That's That's a scary thought. And unfortunately, there's nothing that Peter can do about that. He can't change the law. He can't change the husband's behavior. So Peter comforts the wife. He reminds the wives, it's going to be okay. Above all else, do what is right. That means do what's right in God's eyes. Be holy. Even if suffering comes, God will be with you. Don't be afraid. God will take care of you. Actually, the whole second half of the book, Peter will deal with this subject. What do you do when righteousness brings suffering? He'll comfort us and help us through that. So God expects, women, that you obey him first. Your submission to God always trumps your submission to your husband. So if your husband comes to you and and he demands that you do something unethical or illegal or immoral, you say no. Say no, you got to obey God first. If your husband comes to you, here's a practical example. Your husband comes to you and he's filled out your tax forms unethically. (laughs) He has lied on his tax forms. You don't sign it. Don't sign that form. Don't join him in his illegality. If you have to, Take it to a higher authority. Go talk to a pastor or an elder or or a policeman about what your husband is doing. He's trying to lie on his taxes. Don't join him in that. Now, this this actually helps us answer what is a, a common objection to this idea of submission of the wife. What about spousal abuse? What about the case where a husband abuses his wife and then tells her not to tell anyone? What about the case where a husband beats his wife and says, if you go to the police, I'll kill you? What should the woman do in those cases? Does she go to the police or does she obey her husband? Well, the answer is always the same. Go to the police because submission to God comes first. God expects that people obey the law. When they disobey the law, we have to go report them. This man has disobeyed the law. This woman should go to the police. She doesn't need to obey him. Her obedience to God comes first. So go to the police, report the man. What this man needs is not the obedience of his wife. What he needs right now is a little justice from the law. So she should go to the law, go to the police. This passage is not an excuse for spousal abuse. It is not justification for a woman remaining in an abusive relationship. No, your submission to God comes first, and God does not want you to stay in that home. Go to the police, report the guy. He's broken the law. Submission to God always comes first. Second thing, biblical submission is based upon strength. We said a few minutes ago that it's not based upon inferiority of the wife. Actually, it's based upon incredible strength within the woman. Biblical submission flows out of incredible strength within a godly woman. I want you to look at a couple verses. Look with me starting in verse 3. Peter says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, we'll come back to verse 3 in a moment. Right now, I want to focus on verse 4. Peter lists out what it means for a woman to be beautiful. A woman's beauty is not found in anything to do with her outward appearance. It's all about what's on the inside. And in particular, you'll notice that Peter mentions 
a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, unfortunately, that's a very misleading translation. Sounds like what God wants is passive and silent wives, but that's not what those words mean. Here's what those words actually mean. The word gentle in Greek is the word humble. What Peter is calling for is women to be humble. Humble means that you sacrifice your rights and your desires for the good of another person. You don't think too highly of yourself. You're willing to take the low position and serve someone else. This word in scripture is usually not used of women. Usually it's used of Jesus. Him as our humble king. Jesus is the ultimate model of humility. He sacrificed his rights and desires and privileges as God to come serve us. That's what humility means. That's the first quality of a strong woman. She is humble. Second quality of a strong woman is is this word quiet. But quiet here doesn't mean verbal quietness. It means quiet of spirit. It means inner tranquility. It means that this woman is at peace with herself. She's at peace with the woman that God has made her to be. She she doesn't have to try to get ahead of other people. She doesn't have to try to promote herself in life because she's comfortable in her own skin. That's what Peter's talking about. This is not a, a quality of your personality. This is a quality of your character. You choose to be content with the life God has given you. You choose to be content with the woman that God has made you to be. That's the second quality here. Both both humility and peace, these are qualities of strength, not qualities of weakness. Same is true for the third quality that Peter mentions in verse 5. For in this way in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves. The third quality of strength of the submissive wife is that she hopes in God. She places her hope in God. Peter has so much to say about the importance of hope in this book. We talked about it all through chapter one. We'll keep talking about it. Hope is so important, but hope in scripture doesn't mean what we mean by the English word. It's not a wish. It's not a desire. It is a confident assurance that God will fulfill his promises. It's a confident assurance that God's going to take care of you, that he's going to protect you, that he's going to bless you, and that in the future, he's going to save you and give you an inheritance with him forever. That's biblical hope, and it's a source of incredible strength. Now, what I want you to notice about these three characteristics, humility, peace, and hope, these are true for men as well as for women. There's nothing feminine about these three things. They're they're true for all of us. All believers should be growing in humility, peace, and hope. As we grow in these three attributes, we become stronger so that we can obey God even in difficult situations. So it's true for all of us, but Peter focuses on these three in particular because they are especially important for the wife who must submit to an unworthy husband. Women, I I can't imagine how hard it must be if you have a husband who is not a worthy guy, not a godly man not a good leader in your home. I can't imagine how hard it must be to think about submitting to a man like that. But that's where these three characteristics come into play. Yeah, your husband is not worthy of your submission, but you can submit, number one, because of humility. Out of the the realization that, that Jesus, who is God, he humbled himself for sinners like us. If he can do it, then so can you. You can follow his example and humble yourself for your husband. Second, peace. You can find strength to submit to a husband who's unworthy if you have peace. If you're not worried about competing with your husband for leadership in your home, if you're at peace with who God has made you to be, if you see yourself not as a victim or not as unlucky in love, but as a person who is infinitely loved and blessed by God, if that's how you see yourself, if you are at peace with who God made you to be, then you can find strength to submit even if your husband's unworthy. And hope. 
there are so many women who struggle in their marriages because they have fixed their hope upon their husband. Their hope in life is that their husband is going to become a believer or he is going to grow to become a man more and more like God. Problem is, you have no control over that. You cannot make your husband a better man. So if your hopes are fixed in your husband, you are going to be insecure. You are going to be insecure in life. You're going to be the kind of woman who's always trying to change your husband. You're trying to push him. You're trying to move him into the man you want him to be. But that doesn't work. You can't make your husband into a godly man. So instead of fixing your hopes in your husband, fix them in God. You can count on God. You can depend upon him to fulfill his promises. You may not be able to depend upon your husband. That's okay. You can depend upon God. Fix your hope on that day in the future when you will stand before God face to face and he will reward you and bless you and shower you with his love for all the rest of eternity. That's the day we look forward to. Fix your hope in God, not your husband. That will give you strength to submit even if your husband is unworthy. So biblical submission, it does not come from weakness. It comes from incredible strength within the woman. Humility towards her spouse, peace towards herself, hope towards God. That's the bedrock of biblical submission. Well, now let's get really practical. What does biblical submission actually look like? How is it expressed in marriage? Well, two ways that Peter mentions. First, it's expressed in obedience if necessary. Verse 6, Peter is explicit. Sarah obeyed Abraham. Obedience is actually, by definition, a required part of submission. You, you can't submit to someone and at the same time disobey them. That's not possible. Now, again, submission to God comes first, so obedience to God comes first. But if your husband's not commanding you to do something that's in disobedience to God, you're expected to obey. Now, having said that, let me say this very, very clearly. In a healthy marriage, the obedience of the wife will rarely, if ever, be required. Men, let let me address you for a minute. Husbands, wise husbands do not lead in a way that requires frequent obedience from our wives. Our our wives are are equals. They are co-heirs in grace. In fact, in many areas, our wives are stronger than us. In many marriages, the wife is more intelligent, more creative, more intuitive. She has advantages that we should benefit from. Men, don't just lead through demanding obedience. Partner with your wives. When you have a decision to make, don't tell your wife what to do. Invite her into the decision-making process as your equal. Rely upon her strengths. Rely upon the things that she brings. Wise husbands partner with their wives in making decisions. My wife, Julie, got a 4.0 from Texas A&M. I would be a fool to demand simple obedience from her. She is a gift from God to me. I want her opinion on everything. I want to know, what does she think about this? What is God leading her in? She's brilliant. So I invite her in to the partnership to make decisions with me. We talk, we pray, we seek counsel, we discuss. If we can't reach a consensus, then if at all possible, we delay the decision so that we can keep praying and keep talking. When we were looking for a house when we first moved here to College Station, We approached that decision in partnership. We talked, we prayed, we sought counsel. We each brought our own strengths to the decision-making process. I crunched the numbers on the mortgage and insurance and taxes. Julie, with her architecture background, she brought expertise about what type of house would best fit our family's needs. We brought those strengths to the decision-making process, but still, that's that's a tough decision. We looked at a bunch of houses, and, and we didn't have consensus. One of us liked one best. The other liked a different one best. Rather than just make the decision... I hit the pause button. I said, well, let's wait. Let's keep talking. Let's keep praying. And God rewarded that delay. 
Some time later, we stumbled upon a house for sale by owner. We walked through the front door, and within moments, we knew this was the house. Six years later, we'd still love the house. We arrived at the best decision because we did it in partnership. Obedience of the wife is rarely required in a healthy marriage. Now, there are times when you can't reach consensus and your time has run out and a decision has to be made. In that case, it is the responsibility of the husband to take into consideration the feelings of his wife and then make a decision that's best for the family and then his wife needs to obey. That may happen from time to time, but in a healthy marriage, that is rare. That is rarely needed. So, submission includes obedience, but only if necessary. Wise husbands lead through partnership, not through demanding obedience. But the second expression of submission is needed on a frequent basis, is needed actually on a daily basis. Wives demonstrate submission to their husbands by showing them respect. Respect in word and in deed, in private and in public. To respect your husband means that you honor his position of authority in the home. It means that you praise, that you honor what God has given him. Even if he's not a very honorable man, still you praise him. Still you find things to honor. You express admiration of him as the leader of your home. Now, Peter gives us a couple examples in this passage of what this respect looks like. The first is back in verse 3. The whole adornment thing, what's going on there? Well, here's the situation. These believing wives, when they went to church, they went alone because their husbands weren't believers. Husbands didn't go with them. But in the ancient world, if a woman left her home alone, it was scandalous. Neighbors wondered, who's wearing the pants in that family? Is she going out to see another man? It was scandalous for a woman to leave home alone. Well, that scandal was unavoidable. She had to obey God. She needed to go to church even if her husband disapproved. And yet Peter wants to be very careful that these women don't make it worse by dressing seductively. That's what these are about. Braided hair and gold jewelry, fancy dresses. Those were about seductive dress in the ancient world. If these women left the home wearing seductive outfits, it would just make the situation worse. It would bring even more shame upon their husbands. But there is a general principle there that still applies. Wives, you can show honor and respect to your husbands by dressing modestly. Even if they don't want it, even if they would prefer that you dress in something skimpy and revealing, don't do it. Whether the husbands realize it or not, that conveys disrespect for them. It tells the world that you are not content with your man, and so you're going to advertise to other men. Don't wear scandalous clothing. Respect your man through dressing modestly. Second specific example that Peter gives is verse 6. Sarah called Abraham Lord or Master. Now that's, that's pretty weird in our day and age. I really don't want Julie to call me master. I'd feel like I'm in an I Dream of Genie episode, and it's really not what I'm looking for. But there is a general principle here. Sarah conveyed respect to Abraham through her words. Women, I want you to know, one of the most powerful tools you have in your marriage is your words. Probably the primary way that you demonstrate respect to your husband is through your words, what you say about him. That's true in private, how you build him up in private. Your words can can build him up as the leader of your home or they can tear him down as the leader of your home. That's true in private, but it's especially true in public. This instance in Sarah's life, it's a quote from Genesis 18, it happened in public. Sarah called Abraham master in front of other people and Peter is praising that. Women, when your words convey respect for your husband in public, it is incredible to him. His self-confidence skyrockets. He feels like the leader God has called him to be. When you praise him to other people, it's incredible. It builds us up. Conversely, 
when you criticize your husband in public, when you complain about him in public, it's, it's like a dagger to his soul. Man, it tears him down. It is incredibly destructive in his life. Women, your words are so powerful. You may think that we men are not very emotional, but just wait and see what happens when you criticize us in public. It destroys us. Words are so powerful. That's the primary way you show respect for your husband. Now, you ask, wait a minute, Blake, my husband is not a very respectful man. He's not very respectable. What do I say about him if I don't have a lot of good stuff to say? Well, I would encourage you, still find something good to say. Still practice respect and honor towards your husband in private and in public, even if he's not worthy of it. Find good things to praise about him. Here's how I like to think of it. You will do well if you treat your husband like he was the man you pray he'll become rather than the man he is. Talk about him to other people as if he's this guy, as if he's awesome. He may be down here, but he'll hear you talk about him like this. That will motivate him to grow into this kind of man. You can't push your man through nagging. You can't push your man through complaining. But if you speak about him as a man you pray he will become, that helps him to grow up into a spiritually fit man. Your words have incredible power. Whether your husband's worthy of it or not, speak to him and about him as a godly man as a man whom you respect and honor. That's a big idea here. Women, the primary way you show respect is through your words and your deeds in public and in private. And wives, this is my big application for you. I would encourage you this week to take some time and reflect on this one. Your words and deeds in public and private, do they build up your husband or do they tear him down? When you're with your girlfriends and your husband's not there, do you guys complain about your husbands? Do you criticize them or do you praise them? When your husband is there and you guys are are talking with other people, do your words and actions demonstrate to the people who are standing there that you respect your husband as the head of your home? Or does it look like you disrespect him, like he's just another kid? Your words and your deeds in public and private have so much power to build up your husband or tear him down. Spend some time praying about it. Pray, Pray that the Lord will help show you how you can better give respect and honor to your husband through your words and through your deeds. Now, many of you ladies in this room are not married, so one piece of advice to you. It is much easier to convey respect to a man whom you actually respect. (laughs) This whole submission and respect thing comes a lot easier if you marry a respectable man. If you marry a godly man who loves Jesus, who follows Jesus, who cares about you, who protects you, it is so much easier to respect and submit to a man like that. If you're dating a guy who those qualities are not true of, a guy who is not a godly man, don't think you're going to change him. You have no control over that. I want to be very, very concrete here. I challenge you. You need to break it off. Don't settle for a guy you can't respect. Wait for God to bring a guy who is a great leader, who's a godly man, whom it will be easy to follow and respect. That's what you want. That makes marriage so much easier. Okay, well, now my time's pretty much up and we've only focused on the women. So now we're going to turn a corner, talk about the men real quick. Talk to us husbands. Now, wives, you may feel like it's not really fair that you have to apply six verses and we men only have to apply one, but verse seven is a doozy. Verse seven has two commands and one really serious piece of motivation. So look with me. We'll just move through this real quick. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's two commands here that Peter lays out. The first command literally reads, Husbands, live with your wives in accordance with the understanding that they are a weaker vessel. 
first command reads? What is Peter's talking about there? Well, remember, weaker vessel. It means that the wife is more vulnerable to her husband. Peter is saying that God expects us husbands to protect and care for our wives. God expects us to protect them because they are more vulnerable to abuse. We should be making decisions that protect them, that shield them from harm, that create a safe environment for them. That's what we're commanded to do. Now, guys, I promise you, if if a woman is having a hard time submitting to your husband, nine times out of ten, it's because the husband isn't doing this. It's because the husband is making decisions based on selfishness. He's making decisions that serve his own ends. That's always going to cause a woman to struggle with submission. If you as husbands will instead make decisions that protect your wives, that keep them safe, that help them feel loved and cared for, it's much easier for them to submit to a guy like that. God is calling us to lead, but to lead through sacrifice. Remember what Jesus' leadership cost him. Death for the one he loved. That's how we're to lead. Sacrifice yourself. Sacrifice your rights and your desires to serve and protect and care for your wife. That should affect every decision that you make. Second thing that Peter commands us husbands to do. Show her honor as a co-heir of grace. Remember, women are not inferior to us. Our wives are our equals in God's eyes. They are co-heirs of grace. In some places, our wives are stronger than us. So treat them that way. Treat your wife as your equal. Honor her. Praise her. Where your wife is actually stronger than you, recognize that strength, praise that strength, and give your wife the freedom to lead in your home in that area. If she's stronger than you in some area, acknowledge that, recognize it, and let her serve the family and lead the family in that area. Men, treat your wives as your equals. Honor them. It's really interesting. Women are to honor their husbands as leaders of the home. Husbands are to honor their wives as co-heirs of grace. Both are to honor. If husband and wife are both honoring one another, marriage is beautiful. Okay, so those are the two commands. Husbands are expected to protect and care for their wives and to show them honor as co-heirs of grace. And here's the motivation, end of the verse, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Men, that's pretty serious motivation. God's saying if we don't treat our wives as he expects us to, he will not hear our prayers. It will affect our relationship with him. He will take it seriously. Peter makes that even more explicit in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Men, if we do not treat our wives as God expects, that is, by definition in the passage, evil. And what does God do to those who practice evil? Well, he doesn't hear their prayers, and he sets his face against them. Any time in scripture you see that phrase, God setting his face against someone, it's always really bad news. Really, really bad news. It means that God is coming after you in anger and discipline. What God is saying is that if you mistreat your wife, he takes it personally. If you do not protect her and care for her and honor her, he takes it as an offense against himself, and he's coming after you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to punish you for that. God takes this seriously. God is telling us that he has our wives' backs. If we don't treat them the way he expects, we suffer as a result. It's a serious motivation. Okay, so let's summarize this and conclude. God's design for marriage is very specific. Wives are called to submit to their husbands by respecting their leadership in words and deeds, both in private and in public. And men, we husbands are called to protect and honor our wives in everything we do. This is God's design for marriage. This is what he expects in marriage, but this is very rare in our world today. A few years ago, most popular sitcom was what? Everybody loves Raymond. 
got a confession for you. I don't love Raymond. I, I actually, I hate that show. I hate it because it celebrates an incredibly dysfunctional and destructive view of marriage. Deborah, the wife, does not submit to Raymond. She criticizes him. She doesn't respect him. She complains about him when other family members are around. She tears him down. But let's be honest, Raymond deserves it in every episode. Raymond fails as the the leader of his home. He fails to just be an adult in his home. He does not care for his wife. He does not protect her. He does not honor her. His actions bring worse treatment from her. Her actions bring worse treatment from him. And the whole thing just spirals downward and in destruction. God doesn't want us to have that kind of marriage. I hope that we all agree we don't want that kind of marriage. We want a marriage that is rewarding and beautiful and loving. We want the ideal in marriage. God tells you how to have that kind of ideal in this passage. If wives will submit to their husbands, if husbands will honor and love their wives, then you don't have to have that kind of marriage. You can have a marriage that is rewarding and fulfilling, a blessing. God wants you to live the good life at home. He wants you to experience marriage in its fullest beauty. The way you do that is by wives submitting to their husbands, husbands honoring and caring for their wives. Let's close by praying for God's help to do that. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of marriage. Thank you that you have blessed us by making marriage possible. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark about marriage, but you've revealed to us very clearly how marriage works. Lord, your instructions are clear, but we confess they are difficult. It is really hard for women to submit to men. Even if men are, are good, Lord, it's still hard to submit. And, and for us husbands, it's, it's hard to love our wives sacrificially. It's hard to lay aside our rights and desires to care for and protect and honor them. Lord, it's hard, but we pray for your help to do it. Lord, we want marriages that are beautiful and rewarding. We want marriages that please your heart. Please, Father, help us to grow and to husbands and wives that glorify you in our marriages. For the people here who are not married, Lord, I pray that this morning's passage would still be instructive and and convicting for them. I pray that you would help them to grow into a, a man or a woman who will be a godly spouse in marriage. And I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't settle for a partner who's not a godly spouse that they would seek a woman or a man who will be a follower of Jesus Christ, who will love Christ, and who will be easy to be married to. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to grow. Lord, we, we long to be people who honor you. I pray that our marriages would honor you in every way. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you all are dismissed. God bless. <laughs>